let's go into the Word of God, and we want to turn in our Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And reading uh, the first four verses only at this time in 2 Chronicles 20. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them beside the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea from Syria, and they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat was facing a, a tremendous battle. Three great armies had risen up against him. He was hopelessly outnumbered. The odds were incredibly stacked against him. And yet in spite of that, he overcame in this battle and had a tremendous victory. And so I want us to be encouraged today uh, because all of us face battles and struggles in life. And they're not all the same. Sometimes the battle is a physical one, perhaps a health issue. Other times it's a financial battle. Maybe you've been laid off work or maybe the business has been struggling. Sometimes it's a relationship within the home. Uh, there's all kinds of struggles that we face and battles that we have to go through. Some are mental, some are emotional, some are spiritual. And so whatever assails us in life, we need to know today that we can win in this battle in life, whatever the battle may be, that whatever assails us, that we can prevail over this in Jesus' name. Now, I want us to look at this story this morning and see what we can learn from it because it was a tremendous battle and God gave a great victory. So let's see what we can learn from this and maybe apply it to whatever situation that we're facing today. And the first thing we want to do is to recognize our enemy. It's very important to recognize your enemy. In verses 1 and 2, uh, we see here that Jehoshaphat was very easily able to identify his enemy. It was the Ammonites, and it was the Moabites and the Edomites, the people of Mount Seir. And so that was the easy part. He could see them. They were out there and set the battle in array against him. So physically, even with his own eyes, he could see that they were there. But you and I, oftentimes, we are in a battle and a struggle, and it's not a physical one. Oftentimes, it's a spiritual battle. And sometimes we don't have the luxury of seeing with our physical eyes what is going on because it's a spiritual battle. And oftentimes we're not fighting against mere flesh and blood. Uh, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 6 and 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So oftentimes our battle as believers is a spiritual battle. In 1 Peter 5 and 5 verses 8 and 9, uh, Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Be sober means be self-controlled. Be vigilant means be watchful because your adversary, the devil, 
walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And so there are battles that we uh, find ourselves in that are deeply spiritual. Now, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not ordinary, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. So first of all, let's, let's pinpoint the enemy. And for the believer particularly, the enemy, the evil one, is the one who comes against us spiritually. And often he uses, very often he uses the, the troubles that everybody faces, the, the ordinary stuff of life. Oftentimes he can use that against us and we wonder why that's happening. But behind that, there's a spirit. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes we are just not aware of what is going on. We can't see it. We sense something, but we can't see it. And that's where it becomes a spiritual battle. But... Having said that, uh, there's another aspect to struggles and battles in life, and that is our own attitude. So to be fair, and we have to own up and admit this, that very often the battles and struggles we face are our own making. We're the architects sometimes of our own struggles, how we think and what we say and how we act. Oftentimes, that's the cause of the problem, not the devil, not something deeply spiritual, but just something foolish we have done, wrong decisions we have made, things that we have done that are wrong or said, and that causes us a problem. Let me give you a little example. Many years ago in this church, years ago, there was a lady started to come and she had a young son. I, I think he must have been about seven or eight years old, just a young boy. And she, she came to me after the service one Sunday morning and she says, Pastor, I want you to pray for my son. I says, what's wrong with your son? Well, he's having dreadful nightmares, terrible nightmares. I mean, he's screaming in the middle of the night. He gets up and he's drenched with sweat. He's so afraid. And I says, well, certainly, I'll, I'll certainly pray for him. And I laid my hand upon his head and I prayed for him that God would stop these terrible nightmares and this little boy would be able to sleep in his bed at night. And so the next Sunday, she was back with the same boy and after the service, I said to her, I said, oh, by the way, how's your boy doing? Is he having any more of those nightmares? And she says, having more? He says, he's worse. He's worse than last week. So I thought, well, and then, and then I just felt prompted. I says, well, I wonder what's causing this. Is it something he's been reading? Is there something he's read that's maybe frightened him? Or is there something he's been watching on television? Is there something he's been viewing that's caused these nightmares? And she thought a moment or two. She says, well, I'm, I'm not too sure. But she says, I, I do rent out videos. Now, this was the time before DVDs and live streaming and all that. There were videos. You remember, you had to go and rent them out. So she says, we, we, we rent out some videos and we watch them together. I says, well, well, what videos? Oh, she says, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. What? <laughs> a horror movie of blood and gore? And I, I was astounded. And I felt like saying, you stupid woman, given you watching your son watch that rubbish, no wonder the little boy's having nightmares. I told her, I said, please do not ever do that again. And I prayed for the wee boy again. I felt so sorry for the lad. Imagine a mother doing that. But you see, that fear and those nightmares was caused by the stupidity of a mother doing such a thing. Nothing to do with the devil. It was her own silliness did that. 
And so we need to be careful about ourselves, our own attitudes and the things we do. Uh, Let me just read from you uh, uh, from the book of James. And this is in the New Living uh, Translation. It's the 96-1996 version. I understand it's a little bit different than the latest one. But anyway, uh, in in the book of James, in chapter 4, here's what James said. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires that war within you? You want and you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous for what others have and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. And yet the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your whole motive is wrong. You only want it to give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say again that if your aim is to just enjoy this world, you can't be a friend of God. And so James is clearly saying here that oftentimes the struggles and problems we face are our own making. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul also uh, writes from verse 14 of Galatians 5, For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if instead of showing love among yourselves, you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. So I advise you to live according to your new life in the Holy Spirit. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The old sinful nature loves to do evil, which is just the opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other and your choices are never free from this conflict. But when you're directed by the Holy Spirit, you're no longer subject to the law. And then verse 22, But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, He will produce this kind of fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here there is no conflict with the law. And so as well as having to deal with the devil, our enemy, the enemy of our souls, oftentimes our problems are self-inflicted. And we need to change some things about how we think and what we do. Uh, Jesus in in John chapter uh, 5 And verse 1, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel came down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? 
But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, now notice what Jesus said to him. See, you have been made, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Ah. So here's a man for 38 years had an infirmity. He was crippled. He was lame. And it is evident by what Jesus said that whatever sin or sins he had been living in in the past had caused this disease, had caused this affliction on his physical body. Now we don't know what it was. We don't know how it happened. But Jesus warned him. He says, don't you sin anymore. In other words, don't sin. Don't commit this same sin again and again. Otherwise, he says, it's going to be worse for you. And so Jesus was making it clear in his instance, he caused his own problem and he suffered for 38 years because of it. Now, in John chapter 9, because there's some people now you see and they say, well, if you're sick and if you're constantly sick and if your sickness has lasted a long time, well, maybe, maybe it's because there's sin in your life. Maybe you have secret sin. You know, that's not unusual. In fact, it was very unusual in Jesus' day uh, for, this to, for people to believe this. In fact, even before Jesus, way back in the book of Job. You remember Job's comforters? They believed that Job had secret sin. That's why all the stuff came upon him. That's why he had all the bad misfortune in life because he had been secretly sinning and God was judging him. Well, there's some people still believe that. In chapter 9 of John, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him. So this, this was... A, prevalent feeling in those days. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So in other words, this great affliction this poor man had, they, they immediately assumed, well, either he sinned or his parents sinned. Well, I don't know how he could have sinned in the womb to be caused to be born blind, so it must have been the parents. This is what they're thinking. But Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, he's not saying they were sinless, but he's saying, neither of them sinned to cause this, neither him or his parents sinned to cause this blindness, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And of course, Jesus wonderfully heals that blind man. In Luke chapter 13, In Luke chapter 13, uh, Jesus uh, relates two incidents here. Now there are some, and this is the teaching that has come into some sections of the church over these past few decades. And it is called generational curses. So in other words, sometimes if there's something within you or within your family and you look back and it was in your, you know, your parents or your grandparents, and it's continued on into your life and the life of your family, well, they say, well, that's a generational curse. Somewhere in the past, there's been a curse, and that has followed through into the families, and now it's in your family. Actually, I don't believe that for one second. 
I totally and completely refute that. There is no basis for that in Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, the word curse or curses or cursed is only mentioned a handful of times and never once, not one single time, does it even remotely refer to generational curses. It's just not there. The disciples never taught it. The apostles never taught it. The early church never taught it. It's a, it's a, it's a construct of the 20th century. And it's wrong, completely wrong. Do not get caught up in that stuff because there's no bearing in Scripture whatsoever. Listen to this in John 13. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, Pilate was a cruel man. Uh, he, he would not have thought twice about executing a prisoner. Wouldn't have caused him one moment of discomfort even to massacre people. Didn't bother him the slightest. Ironically, the only person that had bothered to put to death was the Lord Jesus. You remember how he tried to get him off because he knew he was innocent. And Pilate's wife says, I have nothing to do with that innocent man, that just man. But other than that, he had no compunction at all about putting somebody to death. And so here are these Galileans, and he massacres a whole bunch of them and mixes their blood uh, with, the, with the feast that they're having, with the sacrifices they're making. Now, we don't know why that happened, but obviously these people uh, were implying that the reason why this happened was because they were very, very sinful men and God was using even Pilate to judge them and to put them to death. That's what the implication was that they're asking Jesus. So it says, there were present at that season some who told them about the Galileans who blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, absolutely not. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he reinforces this. Are those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? So this obviously was an incident in Jesus' day that everybody knew about. Are those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So let's also be very careful about who we attribute God judging to. Let's be careful of that. That if something awful happens to somebody or a group of people or something, well, God's judging them. Let's be very careful because that's what they were implying. That's what they were thinking. And Jesus wasn't having it. He says, I say, no, absolutely not. And so we need to be careful about uh, our own attitudes. And then secondly, to win in the battles of life, recognize your enemy, recognize your own attitude. But secondly, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. In verses 3 and 4 of that chapter 20 of Second Chronicles, here's what it says again. Let me remind you. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Now notice here it says that Jehoshaphat feared. And this was a normal fear. 
A sense of dread came upon him. Now he could see with his eyes the enemy that he was facing and that he was overwhelmed by the sheer numbers that had come against him. And so quite naturally he was afraid. He feared, he dreaded about what was about to happen in the natural. And sometimes fears come upon us whenever we are facing what we have to face and it seems bigger than we are and bigger than what we can handle and a fear and a dread comes upon us. Well, that's what happened to Jehoshaphat. But I want you to notice what he did. After that initial fear, he turned it into something positive. In other words, he, he caused it to cause him to turn to the Lord in prayer and fasting and seeking God. In fact, the whole nation to turn to God, to pray and to fast and to seek the Lord. You see, for most people, fear has a negative, paralyzing effect. It, it, it debilitates us. It, it puts us in retreat. It diminishes our, our faith and weakens our resolve. But Jehoshaphat turned it into something positive. And Paul had a habit of doing that too, did he not? In 2 Corinthians 12 and 10, Paul says, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm at my weakest, Paul said, when I feel there's nothing more I can do, I'm weak against what is coming against me. At that point, he says, actually, I'm at my strongest because, because I'm so weak within myself, I have to turn to the Lord. I have to seek him. I have to go before the Lord and get the answer to this. And he says, that's where my strength comes from. That's why I'm strong when I'm at my weakest. You see, you had the habit of turning that negative into positive and saying, Lord, I'm really struggling with this, but what am I going to do? I'm going to turn to you. I'm really afraid, but what am I going to do? I'm going to pray. I'm really finding this so difficult. What am I going to do? I'm going to fast, whatever it takes. Let me just read on here a little bit in Second Chronicles 20. In verse 5, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God? Notice how personal he's making this now. You're not just a God of all nations and the God of the universe. You're our God. He's making this personal. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in the presence and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now here are the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, the Edomites, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and did not destroy them. But here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession by which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not judge them for we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Notice what Jehoshaphat's doing here. 
He's magnifying the Lord. He's reminding God, and through that reminding himself, how great God is, how big God is, how powerful God is, and the great victories they had in the past. And he's building, he's magnifying. That's how you magnify the Lord. You build God up in your heart and in your mind so that he's bigger than your problem and bigger than you are and bigger than anyone. And that's what Jehoshaphat's doing. He's, he's magnifying the Lord God. He's turned to the Lord. But notice the next thing. Number three, admit your weaknesses. There's nothing wrong with admitting your weaknesses. Listen to what he said. For we have no power over against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. I think most of us has been in that position at one point or other in our life was something we were going through where we didn't know what to do. How are we going to handle this? How are we going to get through this? What are we going to do? And that's exactly where he was. We don't know what to do. What was it Paul said? For when I am weak, then am I strong. And so he's admitting his weakness here. He said, I don't know what to do. This is too big. This is too much for me. I can't do this. But I've turned to you. I've admitted that, and I'm looking to you. I've turned to the Lord. The Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 27, he had appealed unto Caesar. He didn't feel he was getting a fair trial. And as a Roman citizen, he had every right to appeal unto Caesar. He'd go to the highest court in Rome, and that was to Caesar. And so he, was, he did that. And so then he became a prisoner on a ship that was going to Rome. And as they started out, Paul could sense the wind was starting to get up. It was, a, it was about October time of the year, and the wind was getting up. And Paul sensed in his spirit that something just wasn't right. Something's going wrong here. Something terrible is about to happen. He had a sense of foreboding. Did you ever get a sense of foreboding? Do you ever get a sense that something's not right here? Something's about to break loose. Something's about to happen. And that's what was happening to Paul. And verse 9, it says of Acts 27, Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast had been already over, so that means it was about October time, this particular feast time. Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will be end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Now he was sensing something right in his spirit. Something was stirring here. He didn't get the full picture, but enough to cause him to, to realize something's about to break loose here in this ship, and it wasn't good. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things, Paul, uh, things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and wintered there. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. When the south wind blew softly, when everything in the natural looked to be good, 
This must be a good time to seal. Actually, it was the worst time to seal. And that's why Paul felt that stirring in his spirit. But they didn't believe him. What, what did he know? He's a preacher. He's a theologian. He's a tent maker. He's not a mariner. What does he know about the sea? So they totally ignored him. But here we see it's beginning to happen here. And when the south wind blew softly, they set sail, thinking they had attained an opportunity. It was a bad decision. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocledon, which was a northeastern. And so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the citrus sands, they struck sail and were driven, tossed, tempest-tossed, exceedingly tempest-tossed. The next day they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, and all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. I mean, things are really looking dire. Things is really bad here. But after Long's abstinence from food, in other words, he had a fast, and Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not to have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, note this, do not be afraid, Paul. The fact that the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul, meant he was afraid. Like everybody else on board that ship, he was afraid. He had natural fear. Who wouldn't have? And so he was afraid. So the angel says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And then he said, therefore, take heart, man, for I believe God that it will just be as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. If you were to read on in that story, you would see that's exactly what happened. And all of them, to a man, were saved, even though they lost the ship. Now, if you were to read on where we stopped, even after the angel of God appeared to him, and even after he got the word from heaven that they were going to be safe and saved, and even after he prophesied that to the people, and even after he took control and people listened to him, even after that, things got 10 times worse. <laughs> the battle got worse. The storms got worse. And the ship ended up in pieces. Have you ever prayed and got a promise from God? Or somebody give you a prophetic word? And you felt that's wonderful. And you felt, I'm safe now. I'm going to come through this. And then it got worse instead of better. <laughs> Your battle and struggle got worse than ever it was. That's when you got to hold on to that promise. And somebody said, don't doubt in the light what God told you in the dark. That's when you need to really, really believe that you did hear from God and that you will come through this and you will make it to the other side. In Zechariah 4 and 6, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest were to rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity. But there was much opposition. Really, even Darius I 
for a time was opposing this. There was much opposition uh, and they were struggling to do what God had called them to do. But yet, in the end, they were able to do it because God said, it's not going to be by man's might or man's power, but it's going to be by my spirit. I will get this job done by my spirit. And if you read the story, you'll see that's exactly what happened. They got the job done. The fourth thing is, trust the Lord for the answer. For we have no power over against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but, verse 12, but our eyes are upon you. You know, that is a wonderful thing. When you get your eyes upon the Lord, you can't ignore the problem. We're not saying ignore it, it doesn't exist. But somehow get your eyes off it and get your eyes onto the Lord. Because that's where your help's going to come from. It's not going to come from the problem. It's going to come from the Lord. So get your eyes on the Lord. In Psalm uh, 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 123, just across the page. Unto you I lift up my eyes, to you who dwells in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their masters, and the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so her eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Just the way a servant looks to the hand of his master, our maid looks to the hand of her mistress, so we look to the hand of God. We look for God's hand. We look for God's intervention. We look for God to be involved in this struggle and battle uh, we are in. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. And so it's good, it's good to look towards the Lord. Psalm 25, 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. But as good as it is for our eyes to look to the Lord, it's even more wonderful to realize that the Lord's eyes is looking upon you that his eye is upon you. Psalm 34 and 15, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ear is open unto their cry. You're the righteous. If you're a believer today, you're the righteous. And the eye of the Lord is over you and his ear is open to your cry. And sometimes you may feel he's a million miles away. Sometimes you can't sense him or feel him. But even in those moments, his eye is still over you because you're the righteous and his ear is still open to your cry. So trust, as you look to him, you trust that he's looking to you. And then fifthly, you've got to believe that you can win this battle in life. You've got to believe you can win this battle in life. In verse 13 of 2 Chronicles 20, now all Judah and their little ones, their wives, and their children stood before the Lord. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, now he's prophesying, and he said, listen, all of you, all of you, Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them and they will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the brook of the wilderness of Jeruel and you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Here is a direct word from heaven through the prophet to Jehoshaphat and his people. And notice twice he says, do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. Don't be, because God is with you. In fact, the, this battle here is God's battle. But wonderful as that is, and comforting as that is, yet, yet, they still had to go out. And they still had to position themselves they still had to face the enemy. They still had to do that. And that's not easy to do, is it? You know, they got a great promise. They got a great word. That would be exciting. But they had to go out, position themselves, stand still, face the enemy. The enemy was all there and see the salvation of the Lord. And so the battle is not yours, but God's. But he says, go out against them for the Lord is with you. Position yourself and stand still. Sometimes we would just like it all to go away, wouldn't we? Just like it just to disappear. But often it doesn't. Often we have to take our stand and stand still and face the enemy, but knowing that God is with us and that God's going to fight this battle. But it takes some obedience. It takes some faith. It takes some believing to go out and to stand against the enemy. And so they were to go out and to stand still and position themselves. And then the last thing this morning, and, and this probably is the hardest of all. This is probably the hardest of all. The last thing is to give to God the glory in advance. Give to God the glory in advance. And verse 18 and Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. And as they went out before the army, they were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Huh. And so 
before a blow was struck, before a bugle was sounded, before there was anything happened, they had to go out and praise God in advance of winning this battle. Not just after it happens, that's the easy part, but in advance, before it happens, before there's any change, before physically you can see anything, before you can sense anything else, you have to go out and praise the Lord in advance. And then what happens? Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord sent ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. It had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. And so when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. Then Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil and found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled in the Valley of Barakah, for they, the Valley of Blessing that is, for they were blessed, for, the, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Barakah until this day. And then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem, note it, with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And so they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was upon all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Did you notice? Did you notice that after that great victory, and after they had taken the spoil, and when they were going back to the city, then they began to praise God with instruments. And what a praise meeting that must have been in Jerusalem. I can imagine the rejoicing that must have been on them for, for 24 hours, rejoicing and praising God. But, but that rejoicing and praising, they didn't need one ounce of faith. They didn't need one ounce of obedience. <laughs> they didn't need anything to do that because they already got the victory. What really impresses me was not that praise, but the praise before the victory was won. Whenever they had to go out, when not a blow was struck yet, when the enemy is still in full array, and they praised God then, that's faith. That's obedience. That's trusting the Lord in spite of what you see and what you feel. And so this was a wonderful victory. Just in closing, let me say, three things he did. He prayed, he praised, and he positively professed. And God gave him a wonderful, wonderful victory. Let me ask you today, where are you today? What are you facing? What's your struggle? What's your battle? Where are you in this story? Has anything that I've said today resonated? Has anything made you think, do you know what? I hope so. I hope you've been encouraged. And I hope you've been challenged. Because whatever assails you in life, you can't prevail and you can't overcome in Jesus' name. And God can give you the victory and God can fight your battles. He really can, but you have to stand still. You have to go out there. You've got to face it and trust the Lord and praise God in the midst of it.
and God will give you victory. Can we pray? Lord God, we thank you today that, that you encourage us. You remind us of how good you are, how big you are, how great you are. And so, Lord, in the midst of this struggle that we face ourselves in today, whatever it is it may be, we pray, Lord, that something of this word today will rise up in our hearts and we'll believe that we can prevail and that we will overcome in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, bless your people today. Strengthen them, encourage them, inspire them. Help them, Lord, through this difficulty. And Lord, give them a great victory at the end of it and a testimony, Lord, of your goodness and faithfulness in the midst of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And so God willing, we hope that you can join us again uh, next Sunday morning at 11.30 for the live stream. And then the following week after that, it all goes well. And if the government doesn't extend the restrictions, uh, then we plan to be back here on Sunday uh, the 13th for 10 a.m. and 11.30. So God bless you. Whatever you're doing this week, we pray that God will favor you and his hand will bless and prosper you. Amen.